Welcome, everybody. Good to see you. And if you are new, thanks so much for joining us this morning. I hope you're here. We pray that you'll have a great experience today. I'd love to chat with you after the service. I'm going to pose a question to you this morning as we continue our series in the book of Mark. Oftentimes, I'll ask a question because this really engages you and makes you think about what's coming up. And here's the question. So if you were to describe a person who has strong faith, healthy faith, we'll say, what would be some qualities that you believe would be true of them? What we're going to do is we're going to look at four qualities, and actually some of you already got the answers right. Four qualities indicate that your faith is indeed healthy. Now, this list I'm giving you is not exhausted, okay? It doesn't mean this is it, because you guys came up, we probably had, what, 10 or 15 different uh, ideas and concepts about what makes strong faith. But I think we can draw these qualities from this particular passage this morning. Now, I'm going to cue you up, because in this passage, we're going to see Jesus challenging, giving his disciples a huge challenge that were you and I to receive that challenge, we might gulp and balk a little bit. But I'm going to cue you up with four key words to get your brain thinking even more. These four qualities are around these words, okay? It's not necessarily the word, but part of the statement. Emotions. Familiarity. Uncertainty. And future. So each of these qualities somehow connects with one of those words. Now, I'm actually skipping a section. If you've been following along, you may know, well, he skipped over a section. Well, next week, I'm going to be preaching on something controversial in our culture. I'm going to be preaching on the sanctity of human life. In the States, this is the Sunday where that is uh, recognized. So I hope you'll come. I'm going to speak truth, but I want to speak with grace because I recognize not everybody has a biblical worldview on that subject. So I hope you'll be part of it. So that's why I'm skipping today. But today, we're looking at this passage here, Mark 6, 1 through 13. If you want to turn your Bibles there or your app on your phone, I'm going to read it and you can follow along or just listen. So let's stand as I read. Mark 6, 1 through 13. Okay. It says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, which was Nazareth, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. This was this tough thing that Jesus gave, this assignment he gave to the guys that we would probably balk at. We'll dig into this in a bit. He says, take nothing for this journey. Take nothing for this journey except a staff, 
No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. All right, that's the passage today. So you can have a seat. So let me give you kind of a context of what was happening before this. Before this passage, before what's recorded here, Jesus had cast a demon out of a guy. He had healed a woman who'd been sick a long time. He had raised a young girl from the dead. So a lot of spiritual successes were really happening in this part of his ministry. So let's take this passage apart. So he left there, left, left where he was, and went to his hometown, which was Nazareth. Because see, Jesus was born in Bethany, but he actually grew up in Nazareth. So that's where he went. He went to Nazareth. Now, it says when he got there, he began to teach, different color here, began to teach in the synagogue. Now, it was pretty common in those days for rabbis to travel from one village to the next. And it was common for the local officials to allow a traveling rabbi to speak, to preach, to teach in that synagogue. This is what was happening right here. In fact, the Gospels record Jesus is doing that 10 times. Now, here's a picture of what a synagogue might have looked like. Well, it, it, it did look like this, but this is a few centuries later than first century. So you have an aerial view here, and you have a little closer view right here. Now, in those days, a synagogue was much more important to the community than a church is today to the community. A synagogue was more than just worship. It was a place for worship, but it was more than that. It was a community center where people gathered for, you know, doing social things. Classes were held there. Some had schools in them. It was a meeting place. It was a courtroom. They even had some places in some synagogues where someone just traveling could find a room to stay for, for the evening. Typically, a synagogue was built on the highest point of the village or built on a pedestal. Kind of like in the States. If you go in the States, a lot of small towns, what is the tallest building in the town? It's the steeple. That's exactly right. That's kind of where that comes from. Now, I don't know if you can see it, but right here, these are some benches. These benches, see if I can go over the, they would be right here and kind of right back up against here. When the rich folks came into synagogue, they got the benches. If you were poor folk, you'd bring your mat and you'd sit on the floor. And then somewhere in this area here, there'd be a platform kind of like this where the, the rabbi would teach and preach and so forth. Now, this was probably the first time Jesus' family heard Jesus preach because he was, you know, preaching out in other areas. So this is their first exposure to his preaching and teaching. And it says they were amazed. Now, there were some good emotions going on here like, oh, man, this is really amazing. Yet... It doesn't take long to begin to see this undercurrent of doubt and contempt. As they began to think about it, their amazement at what they were seeing Jesus do and what he was preaching began to cool, and they began to ask questions that revealed their hostility. And here are the questions. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And then he lists these half-brothers and sisters. Aren't his brothers and sisters with us? And it says they took offense at him. You see, they had grown up with him. Jesus had grown up in Nazareth. He was a carpenter. And carpenters were in the working class. 
I can imagine as they begin that first exposure to Jesus' work and to his teaching, as they were amazed at first, then they began to whisper these things. Now, they're not disputing them. They're not disputing the fact that Jesus was preaching with power and doing these miracles. But they're dumbfounded that a hometown boy could do that. See, they grew up where Jesus grew up, and they had the same teaching from the synagogue that, 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 that Jesus did. So they're questioning this. And they're probably thinking, well, what rabbi did he study under for him to be able to speak with such authority? Someone from the working class telling me how to run my life and interpreting the Torah? No way. Even this question, this third question here, isn't this Mary's son? This was a derogatory question since it was not customary among the Jews to describe a man as a son of his mother. And then, of course, that dubious conception story, remember the miraculous, when the Holy Spirit came over Mary and she became pregnant with Jesus? That was still probably in the back of the mind. They're more like, wait a minute, somebody that has a dubious conception, the story behind him interpreting the Torah, really? In fact, it says they took offense at him. We get the word scandal from that. It was scandalous to them. They were, the idea is being offended to the point where they reject that person. Now, not all bad news here, because one of the fundamental, uh, I guess you could say, proofs of the resurrection is this. When Jesus rose from the dead, those very people and his family that questioned him, another place in scripture thought he was crazy, they saw him in his resurrected body and they believed. It's one of the evidences that Jesus really rose from the dead. Goes on to say, Jesus said to them, I can imagine him saying this with a sigh. He's probably thinking like, you know, this should be a friendly territory. This is where I grew up. There should be warm response. But he says, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house as a prophet without honor. And as a result, says he couldn't do any miracles there except maybe just a few. And he himself was amazed at their lack of faith. Now, a little side note here. The people's lack of faith did not hinder God in the flesh. When you look at the Gospels, when Jesus healed, sometimes he healed when the person had faith. Sometimes he healed when the person didn't have faith. Sometimes he healed when the person asked to be healed. Sometimes the person didn't even ask to be healed. What he was doing here, because of their lack of faith, Jesus chose to uh, withhold the power that was innate in himself. Because of their response, lack of faith, he chose not to do these miracles. Their low view of Jesus really resulted in them not receiving the blessings they could have, could have received. And Jesus was even amazed at their lack of faith. Then it says, after this, he went around teaching from village to village. So we went out to some other villages. There were local villages. Then he called the 12 himself, and he sent them out two by two. Now, in those days, to be sent out two by two... Uh, in the Old Testament, you needed two people to certify that something was true. But also, if these guys were going out and, you know, get discouraged on one day, they could encourage each other. But by this time, Jesus had had sufficient time to train the disciples in the task he originally called them to do. And what did he originally call them to do? To be fishers of men. They'd seen him preach. They'd heard him preach. They'd seen him do all these miracles. And now it was time for him to send them out as his authorized representatives. And one of the ways that confirmed the message of Jesus in the Gospels was through miracles like casting out demons. For some, it was enough to see these miracles and hear them teach to believe. And for some, it wasn't like those in his hometown. Now, here's what Jesus told his guys to do. Very strident, very, uh, very limiting 
in what they could take. Here's what he said. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey. It's like nothing except a staff. But no bread, no food, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, that's okay, but you don't bring an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, you're supposed to shake the dust off your feet. And I'll explain that in just a minute. Now put yourself in their shoes, or their sandals. Jesus is saying, I want you to go preach, cast out demons, heal people, but you can't bring anything. You can't pack anything in your suitcase. You can't carry a backpack with stuff in it. You just go. Can you imagine being in their sandals? Okay. Now, in those days, a Jewish person would have, at any one time, these articles of clothing. They'd have their undergarments, you know, like, like their underwear. They'd have an outer garment, which was a cloak. Keep them warm during the day. It can also be used as a, a blanket at night. They also had another outer garment, kind of like a belt or even like a girdle where they could take that, their cloak and tuck it in and kind of keep stuff in, in that, that part of their clothing. They had a headdress that protected them from heat. They had sandals and had a bag. Now, we're not sure it could be one or two kinds of bags. It could be like a little travel bag, you know, like when you travel on the plane, you know, your carry-on luggage. It could be something like that. Or it could be a beggar's bag. And more about that in just a minute. So, here's what Jesus is saying. I want you to go do all these miracles and preach and teach, but you can't take much. Kind of scary. Now, a, a little side note here. This command to his disciples to not carry much is not something that we can generalize for all missionaries or for us. God does not call everybody to be a pauper. He doesn't call us to be poor. So what can we draw from this? Well, I mentioned the beggar's bag a while ago. In that day and time... Greek philosophers would travel from village to village, espousing their philosophy. And the way they kind of made their money was they begged. And they had a beggar's bag, some kind of a bag. And people would, you know, put money in if they liked what they, what they heard the guy say. And that's how they earned their living. But Jesus said, no, you don't bring a beggar's bag. Because you don't do it like the culture does. You're going to trust me. And I will take care of you. Now, you can take the essentials, you know, take a staff to fend off bandits or wild animals. You can take your shoes and your cloak, but that, that's it. You are to trust me. They were to trust him for their shelter and their food and the, people, the hospitality of the people. This was huge uncertainty. Think about it. In their minds, they're probably thinking, well, there's no guarantee when I go into this village, they're going to receive me. There's no guarantee they're going to let me stay in their home. There's no guarantee they're going to provide resources so that I can go buy food, even provide food. A lot of uncertainty going on there. Now, when he talks about dust off your feet, it was common when, let's say this, say this area right here is a non-Jewish territory, and that's Jewish territory. I'm a Jewish person. So, I'm walking through a non-Jewish territory. Before I would step into Jewish territory, I would kick the dust, kick the dust off my feet, because if you brought uh, dust from a non-Jewish territory that was considered as defiling. But here he's applying it, meaning this. If you go into a village, they don't respond. You kick the dust off your feet, and that was a way to say, they're really not my people. Now, he says in verse 12, 
Then he went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, and they anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So they trusted Jesus at his word. Jesus took care of them, and they did what Jesus had done, modeled for them, teaching, preaching, and healing. Now, let's go back to our big idea again. I said four qualities from this passage indicate that your faith is healthy. Now, I'm using the word healthy. I think it's a little better term than strong faith. Healthy is maybe, maybe a word we can identify a little more. Because sometimes we think people with a strong faith are like, you know, the, the martyrs of the past. All right. Those four words. Emotions. Familiarity. Uncertainty. And future. So let's put the statement with these words. Quality number one. Quality of a healthy faith is this. A healthy faith does not falter in the absence of feel-good emotions. In other words, we don't have to have feel-good emotions to fully follow Jesus. Remember the home folks? When Jesus came into town, the home folks, what was their initial response? Amazement. It's like, oh my, this is, this is really pretty amazing. But those positive emotions they had initially toward Jesus, they quickly faded. And their lack of faith hindered the work of Jesus. You see, a healthy faith is strong not only when you feel like it. You know, sometimes we really feel like following God, right? Sometimes we really feel like reading the Bible and, you know, coming to church and worshiping and serving. Sometimes those emotions are working for us, and sometimes they're not there. It's kind of like there are not the positive emotions. And sometimes not only is there an absence of the good emotions, but there's a presence of the bad emotions or the negative emotions like anger or fear or anxiety. Now, I'm not saying that we ignore these negative emotions. We must acknowledge them. Rather, I'm saying that if your, faith, if, your, if your faith is healthy, you're going to keep on keeping on, whether you have good emotions or even in the face of negative emotions, because your relationship is not based on feel. For we walk by faith and not by feel. So if you have a healthy faith, you're going to keep on following Jesus, whether you feel like it or not. Now, I call this kind of faith pseudo-faith or flash faith. It's the kind of faith that I believe it while I see it, if I really see God at work. Now, in my 40-plus years of ministry, I've seen this a lot. Here's how this works. person, uh, you know, maybe come to church the first time, or they hear the gospel, and they make a profession, and they're so excited about God. I mean, they're enthusiastic. That you, can just, you can just feel it when you have a conversation with them. When you see them, they're so excited about God and coming to church and serving and giving. But what happens is, over time, that enthusiasm begins to fade. It begins to drop. The emotions cool because bad things happen in life. They're disillusioned with God. And what happens over time, that faith is proof of what it is. No faith. This is what I call flash in the pan faith. They disappear. They disappear from church. Their lifestyle is anything but a lifestyle of following Jesus. Did you know that even Jesus had to deal with that? John 6, 66 said he laid, he had a lot of people following, a lot of disciples, they called themselves disciples. And he laid down the line and said, here's what it really means to follow me. When they, when they considered it, it said, many stop following Jesus. They determine it's just like not worth the price. And you know, unfortunately today, there are more and more of people who are like outright denying their faith. 
But a healthy faith does not falter in the absence of feel-good emotions because we walk by faith and not by feel. Quality two. This is this one. Resists over familiarity. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, remember when we read the story when Jesus came back into town, how did his friends and family respond? Well, they were really familiar with him. Like, this is the guy they grew up with. This is a home, hometown boy. But you see, familiarity breeds contempt. You ever seen that phrase or heard that before? This is where it comes from. When Jesus said a prophet's not honored in his own town. Here's what happens sometimes. To any of us, it can happen. We can become so over-familiar, we get used to the Bible. We get used to like, you know, say a good church service, a good preaching, you teach We get used to worship. We get used to serving. That we begin to take things for granted. And our faith becomes ho-hum and a blasé, stale. We're no longer amazed at God's grace. We're no longer amazed at God's forgiveness. We're no longer amazed at the work of God in people's lives. We're no longer amazed at the truth of God's word. What happens is, heard that, been there, got the t-shirt. That's not a healthy faith. A healthy faith resists over-familiarity because familiarity will breed contempt. Quality three. Seeks, a healthy faith will seek certainty during periods of uncertainty. Now, let me explain what I'm saying here. When Jesus sent out his disciples, two by two, remember, he gave them instructions to take what? Nothing. Hard anything. Their staff, you know, and a pair of sandals and one pair of clothes. There was great uncertainty. They didn't know where their money was coming from. They didn't know where they were going to stay. They didn't know if people were going to respond to them well. They just had to go and trust God to take care of them. Now, when you think about it, life is not much different from that. We don't know what's happening tomorrow, do we? I don't know. I don't know what's happening next week or during the next hour. And the way God wired us, our brains don't like uncertainty. When we sense uncertainty, we want to get control. Here's some, some research has found out. When uncertainty gets the best of you, here's what happens. You assume the worst, you delay decisions, you get distracted from what's most important. You don't think as clearly, you worry, you get fearful, and you get chronically stressed. The reality is life is uncertain. God is not. Although we don't know what the next hour is going to be, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Life is uncertain. God is not. I pulled out this quote I'm going to show you here from uh, some researchers that researched the spiritual life. And here's what they found. They say Christian worry is the unsuccessful human attempt through cognitive and behavioral efforts, in other words, how we think or what we do, to obtain certainty about an ambiguous future, that we want to do everything we can to make certain that what we want to happen tomorrow is going to happen because of the struggle to believe in, to trust, and submit to the benevolent care of an omnipotent God. Now, all the brain doesn't like uncertainty. The Bible reminds us oftentimes that life is uncertain. It teaches us that we live in a world filled with uncertainty. We don't know what tomorrow holds. And what happens is when uncertainty gets the best of us rather than faith, worry and anxiety and fear result leads to chronic stress. And Jesus even said in Matthew 6, he says, don't worry about tomorrow. You put me first, I'm going to take care of you. 
In fact, all throughout the scriptures, we see the scriptures of the certainty of God. Numbers 23, 19 says that God does not lie. His promises are true. Hebrews 11, 1 says, faith is the reality of what we hope for, the proof of what we do not see. The apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, all of God's promises have their yes in him. And when you look at all these word pictures, these metaphors for God, they include things like God's faithfulness and dependability is like a rock like a foundation, like a tower. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God who is certain in a world of uncertainty. One of my favorite devotional writers is Oswald Chambers. Uh, he's written my, almost his highest. Anybody familiar, familiar with that? Several of you. Tell you what, it's a, you, ought to get, it's, you probably get it free online. My utmost for his highest, I think I have that right, Oswald Chambers. Here's what he says. I pulled this quote out of one of his uh, uh, devotional devotions. He says, we cannot presume to see ourselves in any circumstance in which we have never been. In other words, we don't know what tomorrow holds. Certainty is the mark of the common sense life. That is, this is the, the life lived, you know, on, uh, and, and the flesh is like, I want to make certain the best I can that I have control over my future. Gracious, it's interesting, gracious uncertainty is the mark of the spiritual life. To be certain of God means that we are uncertain in all our ways, not knowing what tomorrow may bring. This is generally expressed with a sigh of sadness. Oh, yeah, man, bad stuff may happen tomorrow to me. But... He contrasts it with, he says, it should be an expression of breathless expectation. Like, what has God got in store for tomorrow? We are uncertain of the next step, but we are certain of God. As soon as we abandon ourselves to God and do the task he has placed closest to us, he begins to fill our lives with surprises. Can you see the contrast? Worrying about tomorrow because I can't make certain my tomorrow and it just makes me miserable, puts me into a stress state versus, Lord, I'm trusting you. You hold tomorrow and I'm just going to wait in breathless expectation of what you have for me tomorrow. Back to some research. Research has found that when we practice surrendering prayer, when we surrender ourselves to God through prayer, worry decreases well-being increases and tolerance for uncertainty increases. When we abandon ourselves to God, these researchers say we accept situations as they are rather than what we think they should be. And here's this, how this practice would work. When you're faced with uncertainty or some fear about maybe a meeting or a, or a test that you're going to, a medical test you're going to get or some relational issue, simply something like this, Lord, I, I yield myself to you in this situation. I'm feeling a little bit of feelings of anxiety and maybe some, some fear, but I su surrender to you. I abandon myself to you. That's what it is. Just let this be a daily part of your life. Start your day with that. Now, uh, most of you know that I'm going into like semi-retirement at the end of March. I'm no longer be the lead pastor here. And let me tell you why. This is a, a big move of uncertainty for us on several levels. Now, Tiffany's going to stay here. But we're going to move back to Laurel, Mississippi, where Cheryl grew, grew up. And our board chair is going to give you an update here in a little bit. Like selling our house in a terrible housing market. That is the big thing of uncertainty. 
like finding a new church home. You know, when you love a church, we love this church, like you can't, you can't, never can duplicate churches. Some of you have come from churches and like hoping to find what you had before, and it just, it just doesn't work that way. So that's a big thing of uncertainty for us. Uh, also, I will no longer have a paycheck. And I've, I'm going to develop new ministry writing and coaching and teaching, that sort of thing, but I want to have a paycheck. That's a big thing of uncertainty. New friendships. We've built friendships here with so many of you. That is a big thing of uncertainty. And of course, maybe, maybe perhaps the biggest, uh, most gigantic thing of uncertainty is this. In Laurel, Mississippi, they do not have milk in a bag there. <laughs> what am I going to do when I want to get, take a sip of milk and you, know, you have to wrestle with that bag? Or you put that in that little container, you put that milk in a bag, you snip the end off and you pour it in your syrup and the whole thing goes... Oh, I'll miss that so much. <laughs> Not. All right. Quality four. Quality four of a healthy faith. Looks toward the future. Now, this is really all about faith. It's looking toward the, the, the long, it's looking toward eternity, really. And this, whole, and this whole passage is really about faith. And if you really want to be encouraged about those who had faith, read Hebrews 11. It's called the faith chapter. It lists all of these people throughout Christian history who had faith in God. They saw amazing things happen, and some didn't see amazing things happen. But here's what the scripture says about those who didn't see it happen, yet they believed about, they believed and they trusted God about the future. It says, they died still believing what God had promised them, but they did not receive it but they saw it all from a distance and they welcomed up. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. They're, our home is not here. So therefore, folks, we need to travel light through life. We need to be careful that we don't put so much of our roots into the stuff of today, the things of today, what the culture says is right and what gives you satisfaction because this isn't our home. We're just kind of passing through. So the big idea. I gave you four qualities of a healthy faith. Number one was, does not falter in the absence of feel-good emotions. Why? Say this with me. We walk by faith and not by feel. Let's say that one more time. We walk by faith and not by feel. Second quality was this. It resists, healthy faith resists over familiarity. Say this statement with me. Familiarity breeds contempt. It happened to Jesus. Third, a healthy faith seeks certainty during periods of uncertainty. Say this statement with me. Life is uncertain. God is not. We can trust him. Finally, looks forward to the future. Say this statement with me. Travel light through life. Now, I want you to grade yourself. Just mentally grade yourself on these four qualities. A, B, C. Okay. Take just a moment. How would you grade yourself on the first one? Does not falter in the absence of feel-good emotions. A, B, or C. Maybe you're really strong even when you're, you're facing a tough day. Or maybe you're saying, you know, Charles, I may get a C there because I kind of like I falter a little bit when things aren't going well. So grade yourself there. Number two, resist over-familiarity. Did I misspell that? Resist. I sure did. Spelling error. You get a C. Resist over-familiarity. How would you grade yourself? A, B, or C? Maybe you just, you found yourself, your faith's getting a little bit stale. Or maybe it's vibrant. Third one, 
seek certainty during periods of uncertainty. Are you the kind of person that like, man, I, I need to know, have my ducks in a row, make sure I've got things covered tomorrow. Or are you like, I'm okay. And this is what I'd like to see, but I know God's in charge, A, B, or C. Finally, looks forward to the future. Are you waiting expectantly when one day you'll be with Jesus? Or is it like, man, I've got roots pretty strong here in this earth. It's, I'm really going to, yeah. A, B, or C. So here's what I'd like for you to do. Where you gave yourself an A, just say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for strengthening that part. Thank you for giving me strength in that part. No, it's all you. It's all grace. And then pick your C. Maybe your C is, I don't know, maybe number three. You're a C there. Just ask the Lord this next week, Lord, how can you help me build that part of my faith with your power and your strength? Okay? Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for uh, this wonderful, wonderful group of people. They listen so well. I believe they're really engaged. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would just take these truths and embed them deep in our hearts. We live in an uncertain world. You want us to follow you fully, even though we may not have uh, certainty about tomorrow. You, you want us to keep our faith fresh. You want us to keep looking toward the future. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would prompt uh, in our hearts this week, what the A's may have been so that we can thank you for that and what the C's may have been so that we can invite your spirit's presence into our lives to help us grow in that area. And I want to close this prayer with, with this. Perhaps uh, you are new to God, you're new to church, and there's something stirring in your heart this morning. That stirring very well may be the Spirit of God drawing you to himself to become a follower of Jesus, to have your sins forgiven. If you would like to become a follower of Jesus this morning, I invite you right now to place your faith in Jesus. And you can indicate that through a simple short prayer. There's nothing magical about a prayer, but I'm going to say a very simple short prayer. Now I'm going to ask you under your breath or in your heart to repeat this prayer as I, I pray it in bits and phrases. Here it is. Dear God, I admit that I have sinned against you. I have turned from you. I am a sinner. I turn from my sins. And I place my faith in Jesus Christ. I believe he died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. I want to have my sins forgiven. By faith, I want to become a follower of Jesus. So, Father, I pray that there would have been several who placed their faith in Jesus a moment ago. We pray this in your name. Amen.